Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12. We will begin reading with verse 49 and read down through verse 53. Christ is speaking and he says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The Father shall be divided against the Son, and the Son against the Father, the Mother against the Daughter, and the Daughter against the Mother, the Mother-in-law against her Daughter-in-law, and the Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is a strange and startling declaration from the lips of our Lord. Yet it is he who speaks, the one who is characterized as the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Glory, the one who has made our peace and the one whom the angels themselves announced would be a message or glad tidings of peace on earth to men of God's good pleasure. Yet here in this verse of Scripture, Christ says, I am not come to give peace on earth, but division but division. You say, but Brother Griswold is not Christianity the religion of peace? Does not the Bible say, blessed are the peacemakers? Is not Christ the Prince of Peace? And do we not hear offered from the pulpit in this day an end to all trouble in life to those who personally received Christ as Lord and Savior. Is this verse of Scripture along with that in Matthew 10, 34, where Christ said that he has come to send the sword, a contradiction to those other statements in reference to Christ's mission being one of peace? How is it on the one hand that Christ can save in principle, that his whole purpose in his mission into this world is that of peace. Now can it be that we can sincerely long for and pray for his personal return to this earth that there might be peace among the nations? Whenever Christ himself says that it's not the very purpose of his mission at all, but that he has come to bring division to send the soul. In answering the question, 
By giving an exposition of this statement of Scripture, I hope also to be able to answer a question that has been oftentimes proposed to me, not only in this church, but in almost every place that I've ever ministered. And that is, why is there so much confusion in the world? Why is there so much division among me? Why is there so much animosity and wrangling within our churches? Why is it, especially where the Word of God is expounded and preached, that there seems to be no peace? We have the answer in this statement. Let me read it once again. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you no, but rather division. And then he illustrates by saying that he's going to take a family and split it into five different ways with everyone in that family against one another. No, I have come to give division. Let us in the first place inquire into this scripture doctrine with regard to the consequences of the mission of Christ. And then we might come closer to home to the subject that is revealed here and receive a fuller explanation of it. The mission of the Lord Jesus Christ has two sets of effects or consequences. There is, first of all, its effects upon true believers, and secondly, there are the effects or consequences of the mission of Christ upon human society. Therefore, when you read a scripture of this nature, you must keep this distinction in mind or you'll go far astray. There are consequences from the mission of Christ Jesus into this world upon the believer which fulfills all the promises in reference to peace. Let me illustrate my four statements. First of all, there is an effect from the mission of Christ Jesus upon the believer in respect of the believer's relationship to God, which is one of peace. For through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, the divine justice of God has been completely and fully satisfied. The wrath of God has been removed from his people. They are brought into the favor of God because of the reconciliation that is in the cross of Calvary. Therefore, by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into a vital relationship of peace with God through faith. That's why we can read such scriptures as is found in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And see no contradiction whatsoever between this scripture and the one that we read before. Or when we turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, we read these words in reference to peace, which is the effect of Christ's mission upon the believer, which is no contradiction to the words of our Redeemer. For we read, beginning with verse 13 of Ephesians 2, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for the making himself a twain, one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them which were not. In the second place, there is an effect upon the believer from the mission of Christ as regards his own dispositions and feelings, which also is one of peace. For not only has God been brought into the faith of the sinner through the atoning work of Christ Jesus, but the Holy Spirit in the application of the virtue of that blood to the conscience gives the believer peace. And knowing that his sins have been forgiven and that he stands justified before the Lord God of heaven. That's why we read in Romans chapter 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. And the child of God has peace not only with God but in his own tongue. His hostility toward God is broken down. And there is the witness of forgiveness by the Holy Spirit. Now that which I speak is the supreme standard which we all ought to labor for. Though sometimes through doubtings and unbelief we might falter and not be fully at peace and conscience as is our right and title by the death of Christ. There is in the third place an effect upon the believer because of the mission of Christ with reference to his fellow belief. That also is one of peace. For the child of God loves the household of faith. Yea, he even loves the household of faith as he loves himself. And because of this love, he endeavors to live at peace with them in all things. So there is fellowship and communion, peace and love, because of the mission of Christ. You see, my dear friends, it is not natural for us to be at peace with one another. For if we are at enmity with God, then we cannot be at peace with his creation. 
Therefore, it is the work of grace that brings about a real fellowship and communion and a bond of peace between believers, whereas all of that peace that might exist between men outside of the faith is merely superficial and is a pretense and does not have a genuine substance at all, but is motivated by the self-love principle. But in the fourth place, the mission of Christ produces an effect upon the believer with reference to them who are without, that is, in reference to those who are not saved. First of all, there is a separation from A clear, such line is drawn between the believer and the unbelief. They do not have anything in common as pertains to their own well-being. But this separation from them is not one in enmity, nor on the account of being in it. For there is a certain degree of communication that must be carried on. Therefore, we do not move out of the world in order to escape their company. For there is not that bond of fellowship that is felt between the children of God. For the child of God never looks upon himself as the enemy of the unbeliever in a sense of enmity and desire of doing harm. He looks upon the unbeliever with pity and with desire and prayer toward God for that unbeliever's salvation. So you see, my dear friends, when Christ promises peace, it is not a contradiction that that promise is well realized and fulfilled in his mission toward believers. But there are certain consequences from the mission of Christ Jesus upon human society. And this divides itself into two parts. First of all, there are ultimate consequences, and secondly, there are immediate consequences. Now, because of the importance of my subject this morning and the weight of the material, it will be impossible for me to go into detail in reference to this subject, but to give to you a bare outline that you might further meditate from the Word of God upon this important truth. There is an ultimate consequence from the mission of Christ which is to be realized in the earth. When the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and society will be saved and brought to peace by the salvation of God's elect and the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the destruction of his enemies and the setting up of his government over this world's creation. Therefore, whenever Christ has made a promise of peace and order, he has not completely ignored this creation, for society shall be brought under the redeeming effects of Christ at home, but it will be realized only at his return to the earth. Therefore, that which we are concerned with at this time are the immediate consequences. 
the immediate consequences of his mission that we can see, that we realize and experience right now. Now we know that one of the consequences of the mission of Christ Jesus is the very opposite of division. So once again there seems to be a contradiction of this scripture. For as we read in Psalm 2, that the enmity of man is so strongly against the Lord Jesus Christ that the kings of the earth, who by nature are enemies one to the other, will come into a bond of fellowship or a common cause in the destruction of the name of Christ Jesus. We know that enemies oftentimes make strange bedfellows, but bedfellows they do make. But they who are contrary to one another in every particular will oftentimes bind themselves together in a common cause of fighting that which is the truth of God's word. This was found in the experience of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were opposed to one another because of their contrariness of doctrine, yet they came together in order to demand the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. So there is the very opposite of division, but yet this very opposite of division in itself is a division which is spoken of by Christ, which is a division brought about on the account of the truth as it is in Christ. But let us come to the doctrine of the text and to the very heart of the message, and that is to see that there is to be strife and division among men as an effect of the glorious mission of Christ Jesus into the world. In our text, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Speaking of his sufferings and of his death, now is out of this going to issue forth peace? No, rather division. Therefore, having arrived to the primary doctrine of the text, I want to give to you some scripture examples of the feuds and divisions that the Lord Jesus spoke of to show to you from the Word of God how these divisions are caused and where they will take place. Now you and I are speculatively dreaming above the past if we expect that a firm stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to bring us respect and love from the world. Christ has promised that you shall have tribulation in the world. He has promised that your whole life will be one of suffering and conflict on the account of your relationship to him. So let us see first that these schisms which Christ spoke of and which his mission is the occasion of are found in families. Now we know from the study of Scripture that the Lord's own brethren did not believe in him. But according to John's Gospel, chapter 7, would have exposed him to danger 
when he was hiding himself from the multitude, uh, by way of mockery because of the claims that he made to be Messiah. Christ himself said to the father to be against his son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. My dear friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring about a division a faction, a schism within the family. As a young man who's not here at the present time, but who attends our church when he is in this vicinity, said to me on one occasion, he said, Brother Griswold, he said, I look upon the people in that church as being my family. For I feel a closer relationship to them because of the gospel than I do to my own family because of their refusal of the gospel. There was a division. There was a misunderstanding. A schism. But Christ Jesus also, when he spoke these words, meant that he was to be the occasion for strife and division among friends and companions. Now, there's not a single person here this morning who has walked faithfully in the way of faith that cannot give testimony to this. You've lost friends and companions on the account of the truth in Christ Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 66, we find that many disciples walked after Christ until he began to speak of the necessity of a vital relationship with him, which relationship would be brought about because of his own sovereign distinguishing grace. And these disciples or followers or learners said, Oh, this is a hard saying. Who can stand it? They turned and walked with him no more. He lost friends. He lost friends. The apostle Paul and his allies were knitted together in the closest bonds of relationship because they had one common cause, and that was the destruction of the followers of Christ. They marched down the Damascus turnpike with hearts perfectly agreed, but something happened. The glory of Christ was revealed to Paul and not to the companions, and from that point on, you never read of Paul having anything to do with those companions again. I was preaching in Cincinnati, Ohio, on one occasion. And at the end of the service, a young man came up to me, and he said, Brother Griswold, he said, I want to tell you a strange experience. I said, all right. He said, I'm in my twenties, and I have been married, and I have a young daughter. He said, I thought that I was perfectly happy and had everything that I needed, but my wife and I fell into an argument over the subject of Christ. He said to me, if you ever get saved, I'll leave you. If you ever go to church, I'll leave you. And he said it made me mad. And I said to her, I'm going down to the church to go. And said, you can leave if you want to. And said, lo and behold, I walked into the church. I was fighting the Spirit of God got a hold of my heart and quickened me into life and saved me and my wife left. That I'm living alone. 
I said, have you ever thought about renouncing the Lord Jesus in order to get your wife back? He said, much as I love her, she's not that important. As it is. I have a very dear friend. We remember Brother Mahan's church. And he was a married man. And the wife made a proposition along the same line. That if you don't cease being so serious-minded about the matter of religion, I'm going to leave. And she did. And whenever they were brought into court to be examined, the judge questioned the woman as to why she was suing for divorce. She said, Judge, she said a woman couldn't have a better husband than that man. Said he gives to his family everything they want and everything they need. Said he's the finest husband, the finest man, the finest example that I've ever seen in my life. Said you couldn't ask for a man with a better disposition. Said he's just as sweet as he can be. But said, I'll tell you right now, I hate that religion of his. And I can't stand to live with it. All he talks about is Christ and grace and the sovereignty of God. That's all he talks about, the Bible and being saved, and I can't stand The judge said, I'm going to give this divorce for the sake of that man so that he might be freed from you. There's the deal. Why? Because of Christ. Christ. But wherever there is the living presence of the sovereign Christ, there will be a disturbance as well. But Christ never went anywhere, nor did his disciples go any place. Except there was a disturbance whenever the blessed presence of Christ was revealed. But also, there will be strife in the general community and city on the account of the Lord Jesus. As I've said to you, there is a disturbing element in the presence of Christ in his gospel when it's preached. And I say to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be faithfully preached in any given locality unless the influence of that gospel will be felt to the extent that it will arouse enmity in the hearts of men as well as rejoicing in the hearts of others. That which amazes me is when people think it a strange thing because the gospel causes trouble and to be. That's what Christ promised it would be. We have example after example of it in the Word of God. That which really surprises me is when someone is brought into harmony with the will and the purpose of God. You say, but now wait a minute, preacher. There are a lot of churches that never have any kind of disturbance whatsoever on the account of the word, well, no wonder. You go hear what some of them are preaching and you'll see why. You let the word of God be preached in those places for a short while and see if everything will go along smoothly. You try that. You try that. Oh, went in the synagogue, there was a word for the people. He preached no more than three weeks and split the synagogues right down the middle. Tore them all pieces. Turned cities upside down so that they tore them out and wouldn't let him come back within their walls. Where the gospel is preached in faithfulness, 
the impact of that gospel in the living presence of Christ will be felt, my dear saints. It has a dynamic to it and will either produce joy and adherence unto it or else will bring out that enmity which is natural to man. And man cannot stand the God of the Bible whenever he is clinging to the idol of self. Why, sure, we have peace. You want to pay the price for it? On Friday night of this week past, I went to hear a preacher. One of the members in this church went with me. He's verified, and I'll tell you, when I got home, you might say this is foolish, but when I got home, I was literally, not figuratively speaking, literally so nauseated that I could not hold my head up. That kind of ministry couldn't create a disturbance to save its neck. There's nothing there to disturb. Not one word in over an hour and a half time was said about the sinfulness of man. Not one word. Not one word was said about me and being lost. Not one word was said about the blood atonement of Christ Jesus. Not one word about his cross. Not one word. I'll tell you, there must have been 1,500 to 2,000 people there. And in one section, nearly 150 little juniors. You know why they were all sitting together. They had a big hamburger supper for them that night, and they ranted and raved for 15 minutes about who ate the most hamburgers and the most hot dogs, and whether the hot dogs won out over the hamburgers. And then the preacher knew that he could just get one of them started in that little section that others would come along. And finally, and this kept it all, my heart breaks. He got Khrushchev on one end of the pulpit and Jesus Christ on the other. Now he said, listen to me. He said, you're dealing with Christ tonight, the one who created the world. Well, if they're dealing with the one who created the world, he must be a pitiful creator because he threw Christ into the laps of boys and girls to do with him just as they please. Never opened the Bible, quoted the text, what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And it took all I could do to keep him getting up and say, Preacher, how about opening your Bible and read on down just a little bit further, where Christ said, You can't do anything with me unless it's given to you of my Father in heaven. Wrong. Read the rest of it. He couldn't afford to read the Bible. Now he threw Christ right out to the left of these two. Now he said, It's two steps standing here. And then he said, do you know who Khrushchev is? He's the head of the Russians. And Jesus over here. Now which one are you going to choose between? You're going to choose between Jesus or Khrushchev? Well, by that time, every little old sentimental heart in that building was broken down as well. You know, I'd take Jesus. I want Khrushchev. So then he picked up Khrushchev and sent him off and put the devil up there. Now he said, you've got to choose between the devil. And Jesus, which one's going to be? Which one's going to be? 
That's you. Your job. That's you. Well, after he got them there, finally made the second decision to Christ. He started pulling them down now. And I'll tell you that that same night we'd already witnessed an infant baptismal service. And it was in a Baptist church. I don't mean that. I mean that they were just a little hill. They uh, had to hold them up out of the water. They couldn't walk. And then they got these folks coming down now. And I'll bet you 25 or 30 walk down now. You'd ask them why they were coming. I'm choosing you before the church. That's why I'm coming. They didn't know why I was choosing Jesus before the church. They just knew it would be the best song. They made their decision for Christ. They were saved. I never saw such blasphemy in all my life. I was sick. My life was not honored. Yet all the praising and the glorying that went on in the church had no difficulty. Big money, big crowd, big decisions. If that's what you want, my dear friend, you're going to have to get another preacher. I'm not willing to pay that kind of price, Craig. I'd rather split you into a hundred different ways and turn hell wrong side out and to bow down one time to such mechanisms as belittle the sovereign God whom I worship. I'll tell you, Jesus, tired enough standing up here on this platform over against Khrushchev waiting on man's decision to make effectual his work of atonement. They didn't know one thing about being sinners. They didn't know one thing about the necessity of the death of Christ. They didn't know one thing about his resurrection. They're just choosing Jesus over Christian. That's why they don't have any disturbances, Brother Sam. Presence of Christ. No, they all they got talking about how much the blessed Holy Spirit was there, but he was in there when they all got shouting about the hamburger. They all got talking about all the spirit here, spirit here. Break your heart. One time, Baptists wouldn't put up with things like that. There was a time when the Baptists wouldn't put up foolishness like that. There was a time when the Word of God was preached among the Baptists. The old days are gone. Folks don't want the Word anymore. I can't hold you any longer on that, but I could just stand here and carry on with that foolishness for the rest of the time. But my dear friend, present-day preaching doesn't, doesn't strip man of his glory. Present-day preaching doesn't exalt Christ. That's why there's no division over present-day preaching. But whenever the Lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and the sinfulness of the man is proclaimed and the work of Christ will be realized in that there will be division. Not the decision of the sinner determining anything. It's the sovereign God who's broken sinners down. The sinners who are not broken down in humble submission to him who is Lord of all. They rise up in rebellion and take up weapons of warfare and fight against the Lord. Therefore, Christ Jesus is an occasion for strife in professing Christendom and visible church. You can't read the book of Acts without noticing several things, such as when Paul and Barnabas were at Iconium in Acts 14. 
They went into the city, they went into the synagogue, they preached. Some believed and rejoiced. Others got mad and went out and stirred up the leaders against them and put them out. When Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica, they preached. Some believed and rejoiced. Others were filled with envy and went out and got some lewd fellows to do work against them until Paul shook off his clothing and said, I'll have nothing to do with it. He turned to the Gentiles and sent them started preaching to them. And that's after three weeks of faithful preaching that the enmity was aroused. But in Acts 18, when Paul went to Corinth, he carried on a ministry of faithfully preaching the Word of God. And then there came a crisis. Two of his traveling companions came back, and it stirred old Paul up. He got a lot of zeal. And whereas he'd been dealing with these in court about the promises of God from the Old Testament, he now started putting his finger on It's this Jesus, this Jesus that you crucify, this Jesus that you hate, As we read in Nathan chapter 1, God has his way in the whirlwind, and we see that the gospel goes victoriously on, and more people are reached. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if the newspapers of London, England had not printed his picture time and time again, using his head and a bulldog's body, making him look like a fool, blaspheming him, speaking of him as a fanatic trying to get him run out of England, he would have never had the thousands that attended to his ministry. He said, My enemies have been used of God to fill up the tabernacle with tears, and men have been saved. Well, R. Sheldon said, if it ever got to the place and folks quit cursing him, he wanted the church to put two men on the payroll just to go around cursing the church. For the best advertisement in the world. Best advertisement in the world. Now let me come to show the causes to which these divisions and schisms can be traced. Now God is not the author of confusion. That's what he said. Yet Christ said, I'll send division. As we explained that. So let me say, dear friends, that strife and separation in the worship of God is not good. It's an evil. It's blameworthy. There's not anything in this world that breaks my heart anymore than when people, out of the petty pamperings of their flesh, fall out with the gospel. And won't have anything to do with it. There's nothing in the world that breaks my heart anymore 
than to see so much confusion and division in the religious world today. And it's everywhere. Everywhere you go. People are at one another's throat, filled with enmity. Breaks my heart. Not good. But nevertheless, we're going to have it. And I believe that as we approach the coming of our Lord, and as the powers of demonism become more realistic in our midst, we're going to see more of it. We're going to see more of it. Now, don't you snarl as though you think I'm an ignoramus. I might be. Might be, but I'm not going to let you know about that. I might be an ignoramus, but that's not the point. I believe in demonism. Just as sure as I'm standing here. I believe it. I believe that as we approach the coming of Christ Jesus, there will be more of it manifested. And there will be more division. Now generally, the blame for division is placed upon the minister. They always blame Christ. They blame Paul. Here's a man that tears cities up, turns the world upside down, a rabble raising, and so forth. Generally, the blame is placed on the minister. But that's not the source. That's not the source. If, it, if, if the minister was the cause of all the division, then we could easily remedy that. We could just knock every preacher in the head, Brother Langston, get rid of it. And then the division would be over. Get rid of the preacher. Paul was blamed. But that's not the source. He might be an indirect cause in his proclamation of the world, but it's the existence of sin which is the cause of division. You say, but Christ said he'd sin division. Christ, my dear friends, does not sin division as the direct cause, but he is the blameless occasion of it. It is his presence, his truth, that brings about the division, but the division can be blamed upon the sin of man. Sin rebelling against the truth and against God. I want to read to you out of the Amplified New Testament in James chapter 4. What leads to strife, discord, and fear? And how do conflicts, quarrels, and fightings originate among you? Do they not arise from your sensual desires that are ever warring in your bodily members? You're jealous and covet what others have, and your desires go unfulfilled, so you become murderers. Your hate is to murder as far as your hearts are concerned. You burn with envy and anger and are not able to obtain the gratification, the contentment, and the happiness that you seek, so you fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. Also, we must realize that Satan's rule in the world is also a cause of division. Satan has his gospel, his ministry, and his spirit. And where anything opposes that, he delights in causing division and strife. 
than the natural enmity in the wicked heart towards the church and Christ is called. So, my dear friends, we should not think it strange if there be divisions where Christ is honored. But we should not delight in divisions, but rather pray that the Lord would give peace. And follow the admonition of the Apostle Paul that as far as it lies within us to live peaceable with all men. That present divisions and confusions in this world enhance your enjoyment of the peace and unity that will finally come. And with this final word, my dear sinners, you who are without faith, you who are lost, my heart bleeds for you. For you're not my enemy. You're not the enemy to these people to sit in this congregation. But you are an enemy who's fighting against the Lord God of heaven. You cannot prevail. He says every kneel back, either in grace or in judgment. Every knee will back. I beseech you to bow before this Christ, this Lord of glory and unconditional surrender, and beseech peace and mercy from God through him. There's no peace to be had except in Christ. He's the way. He's the way. Only by realizing that as a sinner you cannot save yourself. But that the guilt and iniquity of our sins were laid upon Christ. He went to the cross. He suffered that which was our due from the hands of divine justice. And now salvation, peace, reconciliation is made over to us. And it is unto them that are called by the Spirit and believe in Christ. The only way that you'll know that you have part in this great work of grace is by coming to Christ in faith. Oh, I beseech you, dear sinner, see your danger and flee to Christ. Let us stand in prayer. Lord, we pray that thou wouldst take thy word this day and use it for our instruction, for the encouragement of these thy people. We pray thee to draw sinners to Christ right now. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.